to all the people who made donations during Making Contact's year-end campaign, we say thank you. And now, here's our show. I'm Monica Lopez, and this week on Making Contact, Episode 9 from the documentary podcast series, 70 Million. Here I am with the judges and attorneys and, you know, police officers. You can have the most beautiful resume, and they're still going to label you as a felon. And I wanted to be able to, to dig in, roll up my sleeves, and figure out what could be done about this issue. You're not letting us be human. Like, you're not letting us just be regular girls. For 20 years, all I heard was shut up inmate. And now, all of a sudden, I have a voice. To tell us more about what we're about to hear is 70 Million reporter Sonia Paul. I asked Sonia to describe this episode for our listeners. Bail, as we know it, has become synonymous with money. But really, at the end of the day, bail doesn't have to mean money. It just means the conditions you have to meet in order to be released uh, from jail before your trial. So if you can afford to pay your way out, then you can afford to pay your way out. You know, you have the money to do that. Bail is not an issue for rich people. (laughs) But if the majority of the population who gets policed ends up being poor or can't afford their way out of jail, then it becomes an issue of equality and who can actually access their rights um, that they ought to have under the law. And so the ACLU came out with a report a couple of years ago that found that 70% of all people who are in jail actually haven't been um, convicted of a crime. They are there because they haven't been able to meet their bail. Um, And so if you think about something like that figure, you think about, well, why do we have like an overpopulated jail? Or like, what about the courts themselves and their different funding structures? (laughs) Are the courts actually benefiting from the fact that we are setting, you know, high bails that defendants can't meet? And all of these questions came into play in New Orleans, where it turned out that there was this lawsuit casting all of these questions into light. You know, when people think about New Orleans, what do they think about? There are certain narratives about the city, but one of the narratives that also gets lost is its history of incarceration. You know, I've gone through New Orleans before on a road trip, and I think it's a cool city, but reporting this story, I got to know New Orleans in a very different way, and it's the way that's going to stay with me the most. So I hope like a story like this can really illuminate that for the listener as well and startle them in a good way about why we need criminal justice reform in the U.S. And with that, here's reporter Sonia Paul with the story from New Orleans. What are you guys doing here standing outside the public defender's office? Well, I was coming from the store. I'm going inside. Me and him are just talking. I actually have drug classes for 4.30. Class is actually not that bad, to be honest with you. We, uh, we talk more about life. I meet Reynard Oliver and Anthony Collar near the corner of Tulane and South Broad Avenues in New Orleans. The spot is basically where criminal justice breathes out in the city. Nearby is a public defender's office, courthouse, city jail, and your choice of bail bonds agencies. There's a hospital nearby too, so the streets have a certain soundtrack. I tell them what I'm up to, that I'm here reporting on the criminal justice system, and immediately they want to get in front of the mic. Reynard has the most to say. We have one of the highest murder rates down here. You know, and every time I go to jail, I don't never see no murderers in there. Who's in there? <laughs> That's Anthony laughing. He chimes in. Petty, petty crimes, nonviolent offenses, uh, yeah. foolishness like that. 
Up until just this year, Louisiana incarcerated more people per capita than any other state in the U.S. New Orleans, its largest city, had the unfortunate reputation of being the most incarcerated city in the most incarcerated state in the most incarcerated country in the world. It's also poor. More than a quarter of its residents live in poverty, and over 80% of the accused who appear before New Orleans court judges are considered indigent. Reynard says this goes back to what people here are able to earn. Why is minimum wage still $7.25 in the 21st century? You got the answer. And you're right. Let me repeat And that, he says, has to do with history that goes back even further. Because it's a slave state. I mean, it promotes yeah. slavery, everything that it do. Reynard tells me he's just posted bail the other day and that, in his view, injustice comes from deep within the court system. The first thing they do is they set your bond too high. And the law states that when a person is arrested, he's innocent until proven guilty. So therefore, he should be given a bond that he's capable of making. I mean, you wouldn't give a, a homeless man a million-dollar bond, now, would you? Think about that. The city jail, Orleans Parish Prison, is a five-minute walk away from where Reynard, Anthony, and I part ways. The holding room at the jail where inmates emerge once they're released is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. With its rows of chairs, clerks behind windows, and silent air of anticipation, it kind of resembles a county hospital waiting area. It's early evening. In the back of the room, a private attorney in a dark suit is sprawled on a chair, waiting to visit one of his clients. A tense father from Baton Rouge is staring with his arms folded at a mounted TV screen playing CNN. He came prepared to bail his daughter out, but he doesn't know yet whether he does have to pay. Could I ask you a question, ma'am? One woman comes to transfer money to her granddaughter in what looks like an ATM machine off to the side. I can't put no more than 200 in her account, no more than that. Every inmate has an account they can use to purchase snacks from the commissary, the restaurant in the jail. For a $3 fee, friends and family can transfer money to their accounts through these machines. Isabel Cosart was here until 3 o'clock in the morning last night and is back again now, 15 hours later. She has a friend in jail who's been arrested on a domestic battery charge. He's a native Spanish speaker and was assigned a public defender. Isabel goes back and forth between trying to receive her friend's calls through Securus, an app jail inmates can use to place to collect calls, to asking the clerk about her money. It's not fair. Her shoulders slump as she tells me what happened. She and her husband paid her friend's bail, $2,300, but then the judge reduced it after the fact. Now, she says she's not only stressed about her friend, but also about where her money went, if she'll be able to get it back, and if her paying it even means anything. It's in the system, but our friend is still in jail, even though we did everything. So, um, you know, and he doesn't speak English, so that's why everything was delayed, because they had to wait until they had an interpreter. After another conversation with the clerk, she and her husband approach a bondsman named Troy, who's sitting near the front of the room. He asks what happened. Uh, what, what was, what was well, we paid the bond of 2300 okay. and today the judge reduced it to 240 huh. And so who oh. knows? Go back to the bondsman and they should refund we your money. We don't have a bondsman. They didn't let us have one. So you paid the two? Cash, yesterday. Cash. Well, you should get a refund. Yeah, I agree, sir. Thank you very much. Oh. 
She zips up her purse as her husband continues talking, then adds a final thought. So we feel sorry we didn't use a professional like you. 97% of New Orleanians who post bail go through a professional bail bonds agency. If you're able, you could pay the full amount up front and get that money back if you show up to all your court dates. But if you can't make bail in any way, you stay in jail. So say you find yourself arrested and a judge orders a $1,000 bond. To purchase a commercial bail bond, you'd have to pay a percentage of that $1,000, a non-refundable fee, to a bondsman, who guarantees the court they'll pay the full bond amount if you fail to show up to your hearings. Different jurisdictions have different percentage fees. In most places in the U.S., it's about 10%. The law in Louisiana states it should be 12%, but in New Orleans, in practice, it's typically 13 Commercial bail is a $2 billion industry in the U.S. and a powerful political lobby. In New Orleans, some bondsmen donate to the electoral campaigns of judges. Some critics argue they shouldn't, since that can breed a cozy relationship that opens the door to corruption, or at the very least, gives off that appearance. The higher the bonds the judges set, the more profit bondsmen can reap. And concerns about unreasonably high bond amounts have fueled a federal class action lawsuit in New Orleans. I figured I wouldn't be in there long, since I was never really in trouble before that. That's Brian Gisclair, one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit. He's a 34-year-old white man, he's shy, and he has the names of his three children tattooed on his right arm. On June 19, 2017, he was arrested on a nonviolent drug charge and brought to jail. It's like being in a place with a bunch of crazy people, pretty much. You know, everybody's locked and contained into one room. The next morning, Brian entered a courtroom and appeared before Harry Cantrell, the elected judge at Orleans Parish Criminal Court. He was dressed in an orange prison jumpsuit and orange flip-flops and shackled at the hands and wrists. But when the judge set my bond at $2,500, public defender tried to get it where I was getting released on my own recognizance. Meaning he wouldn't have to pay anything. Brian does home maintenance, but it had been months since he had steady work. He didn't have the money. But the judge said no. He said $2,500 is the lowest bond he sets in his courtroom. And that was that. That same day Brian appeared in court, another man dressed in orange and shackled in chains entered the same courtroom with the grayish-green walls and church-like pews. I felt like, you know, I see how my ancestors felt it and how some animals feel when they... In change. Adrian Caliste, a retired construction worker, had also been arrested on drug-related charges, along with traffic violations. He's 56 years old. I'll tell you I'm 6'1", 214 pounds, caramel complexion. And he says he was surprised when he got into court and realized Judge Cantrell was a black man. Because, I don't know, years ago when I did went to judge, all of them was white, Caucasians. Adrian's the other plaintiff. It's his name that's on the class action lawsuit, Khalees V. Cantrell. So it looked like he really didn't give a shit, you know. He's, he's not being lenient to nobody. Like he really didn't, he wasn't concerned. Give me the next case. All right. Who's next? All right. Y'all going back to the back. Send them to the back. I'm through with them. The judge set Adrian's bond at $5,000. And I looked at myself like, wow, where am I get that for? You know? I wasn't working, you know, I'm waiting on my 
my retirement and all that. I said, no, where am I going to get this kind of money from, you know? Neither Adrian nor Brian had the money to post their bond, so they went back to jail. And once there, reaching out to someone who could help was a whole other challenge. No one in Brian's family had Securus, the app you have to have set up on your phone to take calls from jail. Um, my mom, my dad, my girlfriend, my brother, cousins. You know, I wasn't able to get in touch with nobody, really. After a few weeks, Brian's dad finally came to visit. And Brian saw that he was angry. He really, he just came there to, excuse my language, but he came there to bitch at me. He let me know that nobody, nobody in the family would be able to afford that. Nobody could pay to get me out. And I, I was stuck. All in all, Brian was in jail for about five weeks. He was eventually released on his own recognizance after a bond reduction hearing. While he didn't have to pay in the end, Brian says there was still damage. I had a job interview that was for the day after I got arrested. And it would have been a good job that I've been trying to get for a while. Adrian, meanwhile, didn't want to overwhelm his wife or kids. So he called his little sister. He was waiting on a social security check, so he told her to try to sell his truck. She said, well, they didn't pound the truck because the way how the police pulled me over, I was pole crooking, somebody yelled or whatever. So she said, I know this guy, he said he could get you out for $1,000, $1,100. The guy Adrian's sister knew was a bail bondsman. When his social security money came through, Adrian funneled that money over to the guy and bailed himself out. He spent a total of about three weeks in jail. While Brian and Adrian were in jail, in fact, right after their first appearances before Judge Cantrell, they met with lawyers from the MacArthur Justice Center, a nonprofit law firm who had been studying bail procedure in New Orleans. A quick note here, the MacArthur Justice Center is a separate organization from the MacArthur Foundation, which provided a grant for this podcast, though they were founded by the same family. The lawyers from the MacArthur Justice Center had heard reports that Judge Cantrell seemed to be disregarding a person's ability to pay when setting bond. For over six months, they had been researching what litigation around this could look like. Meeting Brian and Adrian solidified their approach. And so, a week after these two men appeared before Judge Cantrell, on June 27, 2017, lawyers with the MacArthur Justice Center and Civil Rights Corps, another legal nonprofit, filed a class action lawsuit with Adrian and Brian as the lead plaintiffs. Ladies and gentlemen, you invite the magistrate court for the parish of Orleans for the purpose of your initial appearance. One of the functions of an initial appearance is we set bail or bond. Khalees v. Cantrell makes two major claims. The first claim is that Judge Cantrell is setting bond amounts that are unreasonable given what arrestees can pay, and that this violates their constitutional rights that guarantee equal protection under the law. Civil rights lawyers are leveling similar charges in jurisdictions across the country. The lawsuit alleges that Judge Cantrell, who sees anywhere from 100 to 150 arrestees a week, repeatedly sets bonds without making any inquiry into a person's ability to pay. The complaint lists several instances of this, like this one from December 27, 2016. We don't go any lower than 2,500 in this court. In case you couldn't make it out, he said... We don't go lower than 2,500 in this court. We'll find probable causes on uh, simple battery, and uh, we'll set the bond at 5,000. The second claim in the Khalees v. Cantrell lawsuit is more unique to New Orleans. It's about where exactly a person's bond money goes. A judge is supposed to be a neutral judicial officer. 
and they're not supposed to have a financial conflict of interest in the decisions that they make. That's Alec Karakatsanis. He's the founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps, one of the firms behind the Khalees v. Cantrell lawsuit. They've been filing lawsuits around the country challenging the so-called user-pay system of criminal justice. And so when a judge makes a ruling in a case, if she has some kind of financial interest in the outcome of that ruling, then she's violating due process. And that's exactly what this lawsuit argues. That Judge Cantrell, in his position as a magistrate judge, has a financial conflict of interest in this role. Because when he sets a bond amount that often forces people to turn to a bail bonds agency, they have to pay this 13% premium to bail out. And that money goes to more than just the bail bonds company. In the city of New Orleans, if you're arrested for an offense, the sheriff that brings you into the bail hearing, the public defender who's supposed to be representing you, the prosecutor who's arguing against you, and the judge who's deciding your case, all take a percentage cut of any money bond that's set in your case. Almost 2% of that 13% premium goes into a judicial expense fund that Judge Cantrell helps to manage, which the Vera Institute for Justice found brings in over a million dollars every year. I asked Alec, why do we have this system? One reason, of course, is that it's a booming multi-billion dollar a year industry. And there's tremendous profits to be made off of monetizing the bunny bail system. The second reason, which I actually think is more foundational and more important, is that the money bail system allows the quick, efficient processing of a tremendous volume of arrests. Which is why the rise in mass incarceration parallels a rise in money bail, he says. The sheer number of people being arrested motivated super quick hearings that last only minutes. If we actually had a lengthy hearing for every person that we detained, it would actually take quite a long time to process all of the arrests every day in most American jurisdictions. So instead, we came up with a system that allowed for a decision to be made in a few seconds, just announcing some amount of money. And if the person pays that amount of money, they're released. And if they don't pay that amount of money, they go to jail. Greater awareness of how this works is why attention on money bail has skyrocketed over the years and why litigation is one of many attempts at reform. In the last few years alone, several high-profile lawsuits and court decisions have challenged wealth-based attention in places like Missouri, Texas, and Alabama. And New Orleans' particular funding structure actually came out of its history of litigation, according to Alec. In the early 1990s, someone filed a similar lawsuit challenging the financial conflict of interest of the judges in setting monetary bails in New Orleans. The lawsuit, Augustus v. Romer, challenged the fact that, at the time, the accused had to pay a fee straight back to the court any time they bonded out. And that statute, that state law, was struck down by a federal judge saying essentially the same thing, that state court judges cannot have a financial conflict of interest in the monetary bails that they set. But then a couple of years later, the law basically went backward, as Alec puts it. The Louisiana legislature drafted a new law. The new law that essentially repassed the old law that the federal courts had struck down. But this time it gave a cut not just to the judges, but to the public defenders, the sheriff and the prosecutors, so that nobody in the system would have any incentive to challenge that law. Instead of having the accused pay directly to the courts, because that would be unconstitutional, the legislature ruled the bondsmen would have to pay a fee on the bonds they issued. That's why the premium in New Orleans is higher than anywhere else in Louisiana. The bondsmen essentially passed that amount the court charged them onto the accused to pay. Some argue this is illegal, but it's common practice. 
I meet Doug one Sunday at a local parade in New Orleans. He declined to give his last name to protect his privacy. He and his friend are sitting on their wheelchairs on the side of the road waiting for the line of musicians, known as the second line, to come through. Doug has never been in jail, but he knows some people who have and how bail works. Everything works together. You have the courts, the police. It's, it's all in sync with one another. Now you got the police, the police department, you have courts, you have judges, you have bail. It's all in sync with one another. They all work together in sync in order to make money together. So who wants to give up that big money cash flow? Nobody. <laughs> Even if it's wrong or right. Money, money, money is the root of all evil, and money rules everything around you. So, at the end of the day, politics and money. There's one other aspect of New Orleans history that you can't divorce from the modern history of its criminal justice system. Hurricane Katrina. So, yeah, I actually did a, a lot of work right after Hurricane Katrina and related to Hurricane Katrina. Megan Garvey is an attorney at Orleans Public Defender's Office. It's a real public defender's office with a thousand LaCroix cans. She says a lot of what people are outraged about now was happening then. You had people being held on really low-level charges. And when I say low-level, I mean failing to appear for jury duty, child support, things of that nature, who remained here during Hurricane Katrina in the jail, um, were put into life-threatening situations as a result of that. At that time, over 6,000 people were housed in Orleans Parish Prison. A third of them were pre-trial, meaning they had not been convicted of any crime. When the storm hit, many were stuck even though most prison officials, like everyone else in the city who can manage to do so, had left. Reports later revealed that sewage water rose to people's chests. Thousands of inmates were left for days without food, water, ventilation, and electricity. Many were then transferred to other prisons, including Angola, Louisiana's notorious maximum security prison. It used to be a slave plantation. It's now a prison farm. There were pregnant women, like, sleeping where animals are kept, and these were people who were pre-trial, a lot of them, who could not afford their bond. So really a lot of things that were relevant to the bond came to light even back then. Katrina only spotlighted what was already a huge problem in New Orleans. Too many people were being incarcerated, often for low-level crimes they couldn't afford to bail themselves out of. And so as a result of that, there were a group of lawyers who had to file special litigation just to have people's cases brought to the attention of judges so that they could be released. A lot of other things came out of that. A lot of reforms came out of that. And the existence of our office, the way that it is now, I would consider to be a direct result of a lot of the things that Hurricane Katrina uncovered. New Orleans didn't have a formal public defender's office before Katrina. The fact that Brian Jusclair and Adrian Calise had bond attorneys who were specifically trying to negotiate on their behalf shows how far the city has come since the storm. Um, I would say there's been a revolution um, <laughs> rather than an evolution. Litigation and policy changes are taking place throughout the country to attack how money can determine your fate in the criminal justice system. But disagreements about reform are everywhere. If there's anyone who stands to lose the most from bail reform, 
whether it's by posting lower bonds or eliminating money bail altogether, it's the people who work directly in the bond industry. And here's what happened when I tried to talk to them. One, at Blair's Bail Bonds on Tulane Avenue, immediately stopped talking and showed me the door as soon as he found out I was a journalist. Likely because Blair's Bail Bonds is currently on the receiving end of a lawsuit. Another down the road, Matt Dennis, who owns Steve's Bail Bonds, said he might be open to an interview. He's been quoted by the AP and local outlets, but he said he wanted to look into my background. And when I got to his storefront for the interview, Mike Out and Ready, he argued my previous reporting on racism and queer rights is part of the media's, quote, division politics. And so he wouldn't trust my reporting on bail. We are being attacked by the left in my industry. We're being attacked by a false narrative that is driving my industry into oblivion. And it's going to do one thing to our country. It's going to turn us into a socialist European nation. So After he finished, he left me standing at the counter while he went to his office in the back. But I thank you. But even bail reform advocates don't all agree on how to move forward. Take California, which recently passed a law to eliminate cash bail. The ACLU, Human Rights Watch, and other legal groups actually oppose it. One lawyer told me it's an example of what states shouldn't do because it gives judges too much discretion that might result in even more people being detained. Alternatives to cash bail also include algorithm-based risk assessment scores, which some argue are biased. And since the algorithms are proprietary, others argue they're not transparent enough. Another attorney told me that when it comes to bail reform, it's easier to be radical than it is practical. A financial conflict of interest is bad, he says, but worse is the courthouse shutting down and people not being able to appear for the hearings, all because there's not enough funding to keep things running. The Orleans Public Defender's Office actually stopped accepting clients for a period in 2016 because they basically ran out of money. The Khalees v. Cantrell lawsuit reached a declaratory judgment on August 6, 2018. The judge overseeing the lawsuit ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, Brian and Adrian, saying that Judge Cantrell's bond policy violated the constitutional rights of the accused and presented a financial conflict of interest because of the court's funding structure. Judge Cantrell has argued the court lacks the power to direct him in the way he practices, and that since the lawsuit was first filed, he's adjusted his bail procedures. There will now be no minimum monetary bail amount, and he will stay on the record his reasoning when setting bail. His lawyers are planning to appeal the verdict. I tried to contact a few people at the court who would be authorized to speak on the case, but at the time of this recording, I've been unable to get an interview. Now, both Adrian and Brian are trying to close up their individual cases and move on. Now I'm just fishing and looking for other jobs. Once he was out, Brian called the person who had scheduled the job interview he missed while in jail, but the job was already filled. And then I called the lady that I used to work for, and she put me to work, but it's not like a everyday job. Just whenever things go wrong. Adrian, meanwhile, spends two days a week caring for his dad, who's 96. He's also studying to become a minister. We talk about what motivated him to put his name on the lawsuit. I say, why not give something back to the community to help the people, you know? He says it goes back to not just how crime and policing and bail works, but how New Orleanians just can't afford this system. Because what they're doing, I think, is wrong, and 
It should be where, if it is where somebody could fold something, you know. Because New Orleans is a poor town. This is a poor city, you know. People don't have, like, in other places. Just the other day, I was on my way to church, and I looked down Claiborne and Canal Street, and I saw these people out here, which I tried my best to feed them or whatever I could do for them. I said, but sooner or later, they'll be picking these poor homeless people up and giving them a high bond, and them people can't get out of there. They can't get out of there. In New Orleans, I'm Sonia Paul for 70 Million. You've been listening to Episode 9 of the podcast 70 Million on Making Contact. 70 Million is made possible by a grant from the Safety and Justice Challenge at the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation and is a production of Lantigua Williams & Co. For the rest of the Making Contact team, I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Making Contact.